welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. Today's episode is SST 15, Black Flag, Everything Went Black. It's, it's the return of Black Flag. We kind of dove a bit into Everything Went Black during the Damaged episode and looking forward to talking about this one. First, I got a, I got a quick spiel for you about a new book I found, Brent. Oh yeah? Lay it on me. It's SST related, uh, but I guess tangentially. It's a book called The Prodigal Rogerson, and it's a book about the Circle Jerks bass player, Roger Rogerson, who played on uh, the first three anyways, Group Sex, Wild in the Streets, and I think Golden Shower. SST related, of course, because um, it's kind of an oral history about this bass player, and I'll, I'll tell you kind of where that came from. But there's lots of quotes in there from Keith Morris, who has always got some good quotes Pretty quotable guy. He is. And uh, there is some mention of SST-related uh, stuff and uh, people associated with the label back then, like Greg Ginn and whatnot. Um, but anyways, this is this is a very, very short book, and it makes sense. It's by a guy named Jay Hunter Bennett. He is a, a guy who writes for the music magazine Ugly Things. You ever seen that one? Yep, Mike Stacks. Yeah, exactly. And basically, he said... He started writing like a five-page article on Roger Rogerson, and it just it just kept going and spun into this book. The book is like ninety-five pages long. I read it on a, a plane flight. It was the the perfect length, and uh, it's kind of neat. It's um, I definitely knew pretty much zero about this guy, and. Even if you're not a Circle Jerks fan, but just into punk and what it was like in the late 70s, early 80s. This guy, like, he went AWOL from the army, was under a bunch of fake names and stuff, and um, didn't really have a very happy ending. But it's a good read, so I would check that one out. Right on. Hey, Ryan, you know what I did today? What's that? I put up my Christmas lights. And? Do you want to crucify me with nails from my well-stocked garage? <laughs> <laughs> No, all that does is remind me that I'm going to have to do it, um, but only at the last minute and only after uh, people are yelling at me to do it. Yeah, I'm usually up on the roof muttering to myself, you're such a man when you're putting up your Christmas lights. First on the block. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I well, I got to do it before the snow comes in, that's for sure. Yeah. You are such a man. I don't feel like a man when I'm putting them up. I feel like I'm doing it to stay out of trouble. Let's get into uh, everything went black, shall we? Let's. History lesson, part one. All right. This one was kind of, I guess, I don't think they had plans to put this out. Basically, what happened was um, we've discussed about their their legal mess with Unicorn. They're both suing each other. SST suing for royalties and expenses. Unicorn's countersuing. And uh, what happens is they get a court injunction preventing SST or uh, Black Flag, sorry, from uh, releasing any recordings. And uh, if you read any of the books, and there's several good ones that discuss it, we've talked a lot about the Stevie Chick book, Spray Paint the Walls, and uh, Michael Azarad does talk about this also in uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life, and American Hardcore has a little bit on it. So they had they got some lawyers, two of them, and Greg Ginn convinces them to kind of defray the costs uh, until they have enough money to pay them. And uh, with the understanding understanding that the band would do a lot of the legal legwork, which apparently they did a lot of, mostly Greg and Bill Stevenson, who's a full-time member of the band. By this point, he's not just filling in anymore. It sounds like they did a ton of work. 
there's a quote, I think it's in American Hardcore, Greg Ginn basically says that uh, they owed money uh, to the lawyer lawyers uh, until after the band broke up. Yeah, Bill Stevenson says in American Hardcore, he says, uh, we had this pretty cool lawyer who said, okay, you guys have to do all the work. You can fight this case yourself. I'll just sign the papers, but you have to do all the work. So that's basically what they did. And I think it took close to two years, 18 months anyways, until uh, they were finally able to release stuff under the Black Flag name. So what they did was they compiled all of the tracks that didn't get used on basically everything that came out before Damaged. Uh, remember, all those EPs, they either consciously or half, you know, went in anyways, attempting to make full-length album. So Nervous Breakdown, Jealous Again, and Six Pack, they recorded extra tr extra tracks for those albums. Sometimes Ron went and redid vocals on some of the songs from Keith era. Des redid some vocals from the Ron era. And so what they decided to do was to put out a compilation album. It's a double album. The first one that SST put out. The original one doesn't have the name Black Flag on it anywhere, thinking that that would uh, get them around the legal injunction from using the name Black Flag. They just listed it under the names of the players on the album, and it didn't work. And uh, Chuck and Greg, as kind of the owners of SST, got found in, uh, in contempt of court. Or, sorry, guilty of violating the injunction, I guess. And they both got sent to jail for five days. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Rollins says in one of the books, he was like, Greg Ginn wouldn't even discuss it. He showed up at the office when he got out of jail and was just, he walked in and just walked right past everyone and said, practices at seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, later on, we'll get to this when we get into my war, but Unicorn finally went bankrupt in late 1983 and Black Flag was free to release uh, stuff, which is why they ended up releasing four albums in 1984 because they kind of had a backlog of stuff because they... That's all they could do is kind of write and, and work on stuff during this time. So that's kind of why they put this album out, is, uh, you know, they couldn't release any of the stuff they'd been working on. The worst part about the band kind of being out of commission for those uh, 18 months to two years is uh, it really took a toll on their popularity. Damaged went out of print. They, Black Flag really funded the label at that at that point. I've read comments in some of the other books and stuff that basically, like, you know, Greg Ginn wouldn't allow anybody in his band to, to have a job. Like, the band was your job, right? Like, if you're, if, yeah. you know, when they were at home, they were either working on band stuff or SST stuff. Like, you know, it was all hands on deck. You were working every day. It's that, you know, it's that Greg Ginn work ethic that he kind postering. of... Postering. Yep, you were postering. They talk about that. Um, he got to hit the phones. Mailing lists. But, like, Black Flag... You know, the reason that, you know, they, I think they did all right on some of the shows, like they got some decent guarantees, but they lived so cheap because all that money was going back into SST. You ever read that, uh, that anecdote by Rollins where they used to like, they were so starving that they used to eat like dog food wadded up in white bread and just pound it down as fast as they could. And that's all they could afford. Yeah. He talks a lot about that in like get in the van about like dumpster diving about going into restaurants and like, you know, buying a Pepsi so you could sit down and then like waiting for the little kid 
the family with the little kid to leave and then like snatching the little kid's food that he didn't eat off the table. And as far as postering in that book, Bard for Life, that I've mentioned before. Oh, yeah. Chuck Dukowski talks about Ray's Flyers. He basically says like they got because I was going to mention the the back of this album. We'll get to this when we talk about the cover art, but it's got some it's got some of the more famous flyers on it. He's specifically talking about the Moose Hall gig, which is kind of a famous early Black Flag gig from the Keith era because there was kind of a a police riot and stuff. Uh, but he says he took a picture out of what uh Ray was already doing like books, he calls it, but it was like a zine, right? Raymond Pettibone? Yeah. Oh yeah. So he had a a book Chuck calls it called Captive Chains. Chuck ne- that that Captive Chains book, like it was a zine, and there was several issues of it. Yeah, well, it was interesting. You know, I'm assuming that it goes back all the way to the Moose Hall era of the band, which was very early on. That Ray was already putting out these these zines, and uh, so Chuck grabs a picture out of that and uh, turns it into flyer into a flyer, and then they kind of like they start using Ray's stuff after that. And he says once they once the band gets going, they were doing five hundred minimum run of five hundred flyers a gig, and they were doing when they were back home they were doing like one gig a week. So that's you know yeah it's pretty crazy. No, no doubt. And there's another Rollins uh, anecdote. I can't remember whether I read it or it was on some sort of interview, but he would talk about how when they were postering, they'd use that wheat paste, and it would be stuck there for like until forever. They would see. Uh, when they would be postering these poles, they put on just the stickiest glue of all time, this wheat paste yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah, it basically glues it to the wall. The other thing about this era is Dez quits the band. This was in August eight of 83, and sounds like it was amicable. He uh, Greg gave him his rig, he says, to take with him. He talks about it in uh, also in that Bard for Life book. There's an interview with Dez. He says Greg gave him his rig. Of course, he went on to form DC3, which we'll talk about. But he was really getting into guitar playing at the time, jamming a lot and like kind of not, I think, like getting into more classic rock and stuff like that. Yeah. And of course, I think we touched on this in the TV party episode, but Chuck Dukowski leaves the band at this point also and either quits or get gets basically gets fired. I've read in one of the books that it got so bad, like the vibes got so bad that Rollins took it upon himself to fire Chuck. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, like something like like Chuck got vibed out of the band, right? Yeah, and there's various theories about why Gin was just like, I can't play with him anymore. He's he can't keep time. Like Greg Ginn's songs have all these like weird off time kind of holds in them that are you know really define the sound of Black Flag for me. Like if you listen to like Gimme 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 on this. Uh, the De- the Des one, it's really cool. Like that song in particular is a, a really weird song. Every version of it is really different, and I've played that ba- that song in bands before, and it's a weird song timing wise. But like we're gonna get yep. into that later on. Like uh, you know, I think of that song. Actually, I think Chuck Dukowski wrote it. Wrote it is Forever Time on My War, or like Slip It In. There's lots of weird stuff like that. I think it's Rollins says in one of the books, like Greg would just get so frustrated. Like he would constantly, you know, Rollins is like, I would go to, I'd be just getting ready to come in on the track and Gin would go, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Chuck, you're out of time. And Chuck was practicing to a click track. Greg was frustrated because 
Chuck was all over the neck. And I mean, Bill Stevenson is a really solid drummer and he doesn't have much to say on the subject, but you can really hear when, especially once Kira's in the band, how much, like, if you listen to the live stuff, like, or the, you know, the official live albums or any of the bootlegs, like, they lock in, like, nobody's business. Bill and Kira? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Bill Stevenson is obviously a monster, but Kira, it seems like in the last year or so, online anyways, Kira's kind of getting her due because she definitely definitely holds her own and and then some i mean she's a solid bass player yeah i mean that stuff that they put out in 84 i don't i'm not saying that chuck couldn't play it uh the stuff that kira actually played on but man oh man uh she really held it down with bill on those records yeah and uh so Chuck ends up again he gets interviewed in that Bard for Life book too and uh, he talks about getting asked to leave the band and he I think he says he goes over to Germany or somewhere in Europe for like I can't remember how long and really thinks about things but he 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 ends up coming back and uh, I think like Greg offered him like a part of the label at that point like he basically became a partner he really took over the booking and uh, started global uh, global booking was the name of like their booking agency I guess he basically just kept doing what he was doing he you know I I remember reading somewhere he said I really liked working with the musicians he really had this dream of like establish like establishing booking networks and he really did a lot of networking um, along with like DOA and the Dead Kennedys in particular and everybody was sharing information and stuff like that but he bought a lot of zines and he, he even says at one point that he would buy the band's record and just write them a letter he, he really wanted to develop these sustainable touring routes and he gets a lot of credit for for achieving that and i i you know rightfully so like uh as mike watt says in the in the, you know people are still still touring on that on a lot of those routes today and I, and I think yep. it's true. And he, he also says, like, the band generally, you know, this is contrary to what you'd think if you read Get in the Van, but he says, you know, we made good relationships with promoters. Black Flag did. I mean, it's been a long time since I read Get in the Van, but I would think that that's contrary to what Henry says because it seems like, you know, there'd be a lot of promoters ripping them off and stuff. But Yeah, that's definitely how it sounds. Or yeah. That's what I recall from Get in the Van. But it doesn't surprise me that they would have established good relationships because, I mean, the work ethic, if it, if it carried through to the actual venue with the promoter, as long as the promoter paid you, um, I could see Black Flag being your friend. There's a good quote from Joe Carducci in uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life about Greg Ginn taking control of the band because, you know, Chuck Dukowski is a strong-willed guy. He's not going to, I don't think, I mean, I don't know, you know, what him and Ginn's relationship were was like and who was, what I'm saying is, like, if Greg Ginn wanted to rule Black Flag with an iron fist, I don't think you can do that with Chuck Dukowski in the band. Carducci says, by 1983, Gre Greg had taken total control of the band, and he didn't seem to be enjoying himself at all. <laughs> <laughs> But, but he also says, he says, Greg was a fanatic and most people are not. He took the business down to a level that was beneath the level lightweights, lightweights could handle. They couldn't handle sleeping in the van. They couldn't handle not knowing 
where they were going to stay. They couldn't handle the clubs. <laughs> and here's a here's again quote. He says, "If we got a flat tire, we would get an old tire that was discarded in the back of a gas station that they'd given up on and put that on. It was real bare bones." So that's uh I guess that's basically where the band was at at that time. They're kind of in a holding pattern. And Joe Carducci says at one point, at, I read this somewhere, he says, if it wasn't for Bill Stevenson being in the band and helping do all the legal legwork, they basically had everything up to uh, In My Head written. And it would have been, there's no way they could have, in good conscience, like spent all the money they spent fighting the legal battles and, and you know, not see it through and release all that stuff. Yeah, too much invested at yep. that point. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that they had all that written because when you listen through Everything Went Black, it's hard not to realize, you know, well, these are all, like, some of the songs that we've listened to on previous uh, episodes, like, some of these are really old songs, and they were done, like, three times, right? Yeah. So... You, you not only have uh, very prolific songwriters, but a lot that were just a lot of songs that were just sitting there until they could finally get recorded and released. So when you have different band members coming through and the song is evolving over time, it's interesting to see what happens to these like, you know, some of the most well-known songs, right? Like Damaged or Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Everyone is different every time. Do you want to talk about the should we start talking about the actual album? Yeah, I think it's time everything went black. History lesson, part two. What do you think? I like everything went black. I originally had it on cassette. I don't have it on cassette anymore. It's one of those ones, though, that uh, it was one of the very rare Black Flag or SST cassettes that I could find as a kid. And so I, I definitely wore it out. And I got to know a lot of these songs for the first time on everything went black. So it has a special place for me for sure. I've heard it um, way more than I've listened to the first four years. I think that's the same with me. The The thing that I was going to say, though, is, I mean, it has a special place for me. But we've, we've said this before, except for maybe the Keith stuff. Black Flag is, you know, it's the Rollins music that really, really is uh, part of where I come from when it's Black Flag. So this stuff all kind of sounded weird to me. You know, it confused me when I was a kid because, like, yeah, exactly. It's pre, I'm, it's it's pre-internet, so I'm like, who's? I knew who Keith Morris was, but I was like, who, who's Johnny Bob? You know, that was really confusing to me. I didn't understand it. I think I probably bought it because of the cover art. You see the, you see the, the shears. You know, there was a shirt, yep, with those shears. I've seen a lot of people with those tattooed on yep. them. These are these are some of the most famous some of the most famous Pettibone images on this record, especially that the devil horn guy, right? Yeah. I would say the Charles Manson one. Oh yeah, for sure. Creepy Carl at the whiskey. Fine art by Raymond Pettibone. I like that. That's what it says on mine. Same here. It's good to have all the kind of recording sessions, li sessions listed here. We're going back to Dave Tarling here, but then it's kind of spot takes over. He talks about in the liner notes, if anybody doesn't have this, there's kind of liner notes with, done by spot and chuck dukowski on the back doesn't really tell tell us anything that you don't already know they do talk about i think it's media art is closing yeah uh, and he spots talking about that and they were recording right up to the point where they were like 
they were yanking stuff out of the studio, <laughs> you know, right at the end of a black sa- flag session, like the board and stuff. So, hey, you were mentioning Johnny Bob Goldstein. Yep. For those who don't know, do you know anything about Johnny Bob? Are you asking me? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I mean, it's Keith, it's Morris. Keith Morris, but do I? Yeah, but you... I w- just, just in case someone out there doesn't know, it's probably good to make sure. Yeah. Um, because I, because, because again, here, here it goes. Um, I had no idea when I got this tape for the first time. Yeah. Me neither. I had no idea that that was Keith Morris. Uh, again, going back to this Bard for Life book, other than the interviews, kind of the idea behind this book is it's all pictures of black flag tattoos on people. And they ask everybody the same three questions. Who's your favorite singer, favorite song, and favorite album? And it's crazy how many people say Des. Lots do. Yeah, well, you know what? When I was re-listening to this for uh, this show... I I actually gained a new appreciation for Ron. Oh yeah. Yeah, I kind of think like he does a pretty good version of Depression, for example. Yeah, he's good. I just just for me th- that era of the band does, doesn't turn my crank as much. So no, it's it was and it was a pretty quick uh, time frame. I don't even I don't I can't even remember how long he was in the band, but it was in the blink of an eye, and then they had to call him back to record. Like it was after he quit the band that they recorded these sessions, right? Yeah. Like the last Black Flag release that we was a TV party, the last one we did, I think so. Yep. Um, but what do you think about Des doing the damaged songs on this? Everything went black. That's pretty different. Well, a lot of the songs are different. You know, like I said, "Gimme, Gimme, Gimme." The drumming's, I like it. Some of the songs are faster, like "Damage Two is faster. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird that he does Jealous again. That's That had already been released, so, you know, why would why re-record it with Dez? I, you know, unless they were going to put it on a full-length album again. Yeah. After, but, I, you know, I can't see them doing that. I like the Dez stuff best myself just because I like the, I, you know, that's those are the songs I gravitate to. Damage is pretty fast on this one too, right? Yeah. And uh, one of them's live too. Live at Target Video. I don't know how live that is. You see a lot of live at Target video stuff, but it's uh, Damaged 1. Yeah. And then second record, side four, is called Crass Commercialism. And it's a bunch of ads that they did for probably K-Rock, I'm assuming. For Rodney? Yeah, some of them are pretty funny. And if you read in the liner notes, Spots liner notes, it says, uh, he says, except for the commercials, but there we have a clear-cut case of combined black flag Merrill spot over gelatination being fed too many pots of generic coffee during those crass midnight hours. Yeah. So that, that would be Merrill Ward. Who else would it be? Hey. Yeah. I don't know of any other Merrill's, you know, what's interesting though. Um, I haven't read these liner notes for a long time and rereading them. Spot talks a lot about, this is a little bit random, but he talks a lot about roller, uh, roller skating. And have you ever seen that book? that spot put or that has been put out about of um like his photography one yeah yeah i've got i've got that book and it's all of like late 70s early 80s california but there's lots of roller skating pics in there too so it's interesting that that was kind of part of i mean he says it right off the bat you know we had skateboards roller skating too up and down the strand and then it sounds like roller skating got taken over by disco and then he had to ditch the roller the roller skating (laughs) One of the thoughts I thought was 
things I thought was interesting during the commercials is somebody yells out, get in the van. Yeah. Obviously that was like a, I don't know, a slogan or something that was being used at that time. Rallying cry. Anything else? Or should we talk about the art or are you good there? Well, we kind of... Mine says Black Flag on the cover. Yeah, I've only, I've never owned a non-Black Flag on the cover version and like i said my first was a cassette and for some reason i have this on cd and vinyl now they probably these versions are probably from the 90s or something like that the shears on the front very famous image i mean it's still very pettibone-esque of this era pettibone really you know his more recent stuff is very different it's big brush strokes and stuff back then it was um almost like comics type of artwork with lots of fine lines and stuff and all of these uh fo- like the artwork all kind of looks like that but just check out who are on the gig flyers on the back right oh yeah that is something to make uh make note of so on the top one at least on my copy it's black flag with the subhumans from canada red cross the screws who i don't know anything about Angry Samoans, who I really like. And then, is it Dirtab? Yeah, I don't know who that is. I have no idea who Dirtab is, but I'm a big fan of subhumans and angry Samoans on that list. And then... I like Red Cross quite a bit. What era, though, of Red Cross? Back then? When they spelt with a K, not a yeah. C. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind yeah. of me, too. And then the next one, this is the one at the hideaway. It's Black Flag with Giza X and the Mommy Men. The Stains and the Descendants. That would have been an amazing bill, obviously. And then here we got some more Canadian content in the next one at the Whiskey DOA. So you can see... You can, one of my favorites. Oh, uh, me too. Well, you can see that tour network up the West Coast up into Vancouver starting on these gig flyers almost. You want to do the ballot result? Before we do that, we should talk about the runout grooves. This is a double LP. We'll do them in order here. It'll take a second though. Side A says... Robo is God, spacing out to the beat of a different drummer. All right, side B says, feeling uneasy, question mark. Chavo says, here comes Dez, jealous anyone, question mark. Let's go to side three. So maybe we're waiting for a heavy alloy savior, Ozzy, question mark. Heavy metal savior, Ozzy Osbourne, just guessing. Probably. Yep. They were listening to a lot of Sabbath at this point. Yeah. And then side four has got, it's a double line run out groove. It's not just one line. It's two. Here we go. It says, no corn in my horn, not where this bop drops, y'all. And then it's a circle with a dot. So that would be signed by Spot, I presume. And then yep. the the second line says, evil clutches, let no men fall prey. And then the black flag bars. There you go. Let's do the ballot result. Ballot result. This one's all up to you, Brent. Well, you know, I'm I'm picking something off side three. Maybe uh, room 13, since I didn't get it on damaged. Yeah, I think these compilations are kind of the makeup one for sure. If you missed it the first time, get it the second time. I really like that song. It's good. Depression's good. Padded Cell's good. I like there's three versions of depression on this and I like all of them, but I still like the one on damage the best. All right, let's do room 13 then. All right. What, uh, what is, what is the next episode, Ryan? Next one is another Minuteman release, Buzzer Howl, 
which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is one of your favorites. I like it. Last one we did on uh, Minutemen was What Makes a Man Start Fires, and we were kind of talking about how they were getting a little bit more, a little bit more funky and a little bit more, a little bit more jazzy, a little bit more funky. So it'll be interesting to see where the Minutemen are at on Buzzer Howell. They're going, they're the getting a little episode. more mersh. <laughs> Not by then. <laughs> I doubt that. That's way, that's way later. Way later. Well, another 20 or so releases from now. All right. Okay. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. 